Welcome. I uh, just want to uh, introduce myself. My name is Jason. I serve as a pastor here at the church. If you're new, visiting for the first time, uh, welcome to our community. If you're joining us online, uh, welcome as well. We hope at some point, if you're in the LA area, we'd love to have you join us in person. Uh, I have the privilege of bringing us God's word. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me uh, to the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Uh, if you can choose your translation, uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Okay, Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 17 to 31. This is the reading of God's word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first amen um, well if you've been with us you know that we are in a series through the book of mark where we're looking at various moments uh, in jesus's life and ministry and one of the challenges of preaching through mark week to week sunday to sunday uh, is that you kind of end up splicing the book um, you know, and taking passages out of their larger context. And, and this isn't how the book of Mark was meant to be read. It was meant to actually uh, be experienced in one sitting. Um, and so, you know, all the passages, even in their order, are very intentional. Um, and so if you remember last week, we looked at the passage that comes right before this, and it was Jesus talking about how the kingdom of God belongs to children who have absolutely nothing at all. And it's meant to be juxtaposed with this very next story, the passage we're looking at today, where it talks about how you have this rich man who has everything and yet lacks one thing to enter the kingdom of God. And they're meant to be kind of read together. Uh, for those of you who've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard this story. It's often referred to as a story of the rich young ruler. Uh, we don't get that title, a ruler, in, in, God, in Mark's um, uh, in Mark's description of this encounter, but we see that come out in the book of Luke, uh, which is why the story is known that way, the rich young ruler. 
But it's one of those stories that uh, we would much rather avoid. Um, if you're, you know, if you're visiting our church for the first time, uh, this is one of those when you're like, dang it, I came on the wrong week. Um, because, you know, it's one of those stories that talk about the thing nobody wants Jesus to talk about, which is their money. We can handle Jesus telling us to love our enemies. We can handle Jesus telling us uh, to forgive those who wrong us. We can even handle Jesus telling us what to do with our bodies. Uh, but the one thing we cannot stand Jesus telling us what to do with is our bank accounts. We don't like it, uh, especially uh, here in L.A., um, you do not want to tell people uh, what to do with their money. You don't want to tell people that Jesus has a claim to what they do with their money and their relationship with money. But you have to wonder, is it a coincidence that for every one time Jesus warns about um, the dangers of building your life on sex and romance, he warns people ten times about money? Do you know how many verses in the Bible talk about homosexuality? Six. Do you know how many verses in the Bible talk about money? Over 2,000. And yet what do Christians, especially here in America, spend all their time debating? And I think we all know the answer to that. And it's because money is the universal savior, or at least we see it that way. It's the one thing where it doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative. It doesn't matter if you live in a city or a suburb. It doesn't matter if you're white, black, brown, or yellow. I haven't met any person in my 38 years of life that has, hasn't said, I wouldn't mind having more money. It's the one thing that grips us, right? I remember um, back, I don't know if you guys remember when the lottery was at a billion dollars, okay? The week before, it was at like 900 million, and I was preaching a sermon, you know, and I made a joke, and I gave this sermon illustration, and I talked about this family who won the lotto, and their entire lives imploded, and they lost everything that was of value to them. But then the lottery hit $1 billion, and um, I began to pray. I was like, Lord, let me be the exception. You know, I was like, you know, I... I'll use it well. I'll use the money well. Um, I'll buy the church a building. I'll buy everyone in here a house, you know, and um, you know, just, just let me win this. And uh, I bought like 40 tickets. Um, obviously, di didn't win. Um, and preaching passages like this is very difficult for me because um, I don't want to preach something I can't live out. But I'm just going to tell you straight up, if Jesus walked into this room today and he told me, I want you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, I don't know that I could do it. And I know this because just last week I bought a book on Amazon for $13.95 and the very next day I saw the same book for $8.95 and I lost my mind, right? That was $5 and I lost my mind. This is the grip that money has on our lives. And the scary thing about money is that most people don't realize it. Just like this man in Mark 10 doesn't realize it. And you have to understand that this guy isn't this sleazy businessman. He's not this corrupt politician who's knowingly like swindling people, who's knowingly cheating people out of their money to get rich. This is the epitome of a successful, honest, good Jewish boy. This is a guy who's done everything the right way. This is a guy who hasn't cut corners. He hasn't used people to get to the top. He's done everything the way he should. He represents the very best 
society has to offer. And so it's very interesting that this story opens with a man with this kind of a resume running up to Jesus, falling on his knees, and asking him a very interesting question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? For someone who has everything and for someone who has done everything the right way, why would you ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? For all that he has and for all that he's done, he still feels like there's something he doesn't have and something more he needs to do. There's still something missing in his life. And this phrase, eternal life, is a really difficult phrase to translate from the original Greek. And, and you know, uh, most people, when we hear that phrase, eternal life, we think about the place we go to after we die. This is what most people think Christianity is about. It's about going somewhere after we die. But you have to understand that this is not the way uh, the ancient Jews would have read this story. You know, often we think, oh, what this man must be asking Jesus is, what is the minimum I need to do to make sure that after I die, I get to go to the good place with the angels and the harps, and I can avoid the bad place with the fire and, and the red guy with the horns, right? Most people think this is what Christianity is about, but this is not the way a first century Jew would have understood this text. Uh, this is not the way a first century Jew would have even understood the idea of eternal life or salvation. For a first century Jew, yes, though there was some kind of belief in the afterlife, most first century Jews weren't looking for something after they died. You see, for most first century Jews, they divided human history into two ages, the present age and the age to come. The present age was an age full of violence, war, injustice, oppression. And the age to come was this long-awaited age when a new king would come and usher in a new kingdom of radical justice, radical generosity, radical goodness and love. For them, it was not about going to heaven. It was about heaven coming to earth. And this is why it's so significant that at the beginning of Mark 1, when Jesus comes on the scene, he says the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, meaning I am bringing heaven to earth now. This is the inbreaking of the kingdom now. I am here to inaugurate this long-awaited age to come, this reality you've been waiting for. Eternal life for them was not just going up there. It was heaven coming down here. This is why if you noticed in the passage, the words eternal life, heaven, and kingdom of God are all used interchangeably. It's like what the late Dallas Willard used to say. He used to say the goal of the Christian life is not about getting into heaven. It's about getting heaven into you. And so what this man is asking Jesus when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life He's saying, what do I need to do to experience that life of joy, peace, satisfaction, and love promised in the age to come now? Because I have everything a person could ask for in this life, and yet there's still something missing. I'm still not satisfied. I'm still searching. Now, you would think, right, this is like a t-ball question for Jesus, you know, this is the question every Christian hopes their non-Christian friend asks them. You know, like I'm drinking a glass of scotch with my non-Christian friend, and out of nowhere they're like, you know, Jason, something's missing in my life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is for a pastor. This is like, yes, this is the one. 
And you're supposed to say, you don't need to do anything because Jesus came, lived the life you couldn't live, died a sacrificial debt, a death, paid the debt that you owed, and he took on the wrath you justly deserved. All you have to do is believe in him. This is what you expect Jesus to say, and yet that's not what he says. He answers in a very cryptic way, as Jesus often does. He basically says, the first thing he says is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And it's so like Jesus to answer in this way, but you have to understand, every time Jesus encounters someone, he's always so intentional. He's so good at peeling the layers of a person's heart, peeling the layers of their question, because he knows what we need. If you remember the story of Jesus healing the leper, why do you think Jesus touched the man? Right? We said we, don't, we know Jesus doesn't need to touch people to heal them, but for the leper, he knew he had to touch him, that there was something about that touch that the leper was craving. And so to this rich man, we know that Jesus is up to something when he says only God can be good, and he wants to confront this man's presumption that there's actually something a human being can do to become good. He's saying there's no human being out there who can be good only God is good, and the implication there is that only God can make you good. And it feels like Jesus then is setting up what's supposed to come next, because what's supposed to happen next is Jesus saying, but don't worry, God will make you good. That's why I'm here. I'm here to die for your sins, and now you can be good, but yet that's not what Jesus says either. He says, you know the commandments. You're a good Jewish boy. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father, father and mother. And the man replies, I have done all these things. I have kept all these commandments. In other words, I am good. I have done everything right. I mean, that's why I'm rich. And we have to understand that in that society, material wealth was equated to having the favor and blessing of God. So if you were rich... It meant that, yes, you did live your life the way you should. You did follow all the laws of the Torah. If you were rich, it meant that God blessed you and he loved you. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, I am good. But Jesus knows that underneath this confident exterior is an insecure, scared soul. And I love what comes next. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. You know, this is the only time in the book of Mark, in the entire gospel, where it says Jesus looked at someone and loved him, and loved him. Isn't that crazy? We often think, we read this encounter thinking that Jesus is trying to make this rich man feel stupid. No, he loves him like a father or mother loves their child. He's saying, are you sure you're okay? You know, you got to kind of put yourself in this story and visualize yourself. It, you know, it's kind of like, come on. Are you really okay? You know, you have those people in your life. You know, I have those people who come up to me and they say, how are you doing, Jason? I'm like, I'm fine. And they pull me aside. They're like, now, how are you really doing? And I'm like, I'm not fine. It's been really hard. This is what Jesus is doing here. You know, this past uh, week, Carol picked up our daughter, Avery, um, who's six, from school. And when Carol got there, um, Avery was playing tetherball by herself at the tetherball courts. And Carol was telling me that, you know, Avery saw her, ran up to her, and immediately was like, Mommy, I had a great day. I learned how to play tetherball. Um, 
But Carol noticed that Avery's eyes were like welling up with tears. And you know, every mom has a sixth sense. And she was like, wait, what's wrong? Are you okay? And everybody was like, oh no, nothing, I'm fine. I'm okay. And only later on, after we asked her multiple times if everything was okay, did we hear the whole story. And the story was that there were these older kids playing tetherball. Avery wanted to play with them, but she doesn't know how to play, so they wouldn't let her play with them. And then they left her there to play by herself. And that's, where, that's how Carol found her, just hitting the tetherball on her own. And that's the heart of every parent, right? To look at their child and say, I know you're not okay. And these questions that Jesus is asking, they're meant to be Jesus being like, how are you doing? And the man says, I'm okay. Look at everything I have. I have kept all the commandments. I've done everything the right way. And Jesus just looks at him with love. And he's like, you're not okay, though. I know you're not okay. And you see, this is what money does. More than anything in the world, money gives you and others the impression that you're okay, that you're good, that you're safe, that nothing can hurt you. But Jesus knows we're not okay. And it's not that money in and of itself is bad. You know, there are countless examples in the Bible of very wealthy people who loved God. Think about Solomon, King David, Joseph, right? Very wealthy people who, who the Bible says loved God. But we can't fool ourselves into thinking we're just like them. You know, we are the masters of like finding those characters in the Bible and saying, ah, finding ways to justify our relationship with money, finding ways to justify Jesus' teaching on money. But you have to understand money is not neutral. Don't ever for a moment think money doesn't have the power to control you. Money is one of the few things in this life that can turn someone into a ruthless, heartless, arrogant person. People will sacrifice their friendships for money. They will sacrifice their family for money. They will sacrifice everything to get more of it. If you don't believe me, watch Squid Game, right? I mean, the whole time, if you ever thought for a moment while you were watching Squid Game, that isn't me, you're lying to yourself. Because the whole time, the reason that show is so captivating is because there's a part of you that knows that could be me. That could be me that knows the grip that money has on our lives. It has the power to make you feel superior to the people who have less than you. And it has the power to make you feel inferior to the people who have more than you. And the most dangerous thing about money is that you can hide behind it for a long time. You know, you can hide behind your looks and your body for maybe 10, 20 years if you're healthy if you're J-Lo, maybe 40, 50 years, right? But money, you can hide behind it your entire life. You can just buy more things, buy a bigger house, buy a nicer car. You can just keep covering up the emptiness that and insecurity that you have inside. It's our version of the fig leaves in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were trying to cover their shame and trying to cover their nakedness. Nothing does this better than money. 
And this is why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is obviously using hyperbole here. A camel was the largest land animal they knew of at that time. An eye of a needle is the smallest thing that they could probably think of. And he's saying it is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it makes sense because if last week we learned that for Jesus, the kingdom of God belongs to people who have nothing, for people who are helpless, powerless, and vulnerable, then you have to, it makes sense then Jesus would say that there's no chance for the wealthy because by definition, they're not helpless. They're not powerless and they're not vulnerable. And he's going to further expose that with what he says next. He says, if you really think you're good, if you really think you're okay, why don't you sell everything you have and give it away to the poor and follow me? And what happens? The man can't do it. It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In other translations, it says, the man walked away sad. That's a very, very strange reaction, right? Because there are only two possible reactions you can think of to this story. Either the man says, yes, I'll follow every, I'll drop everything and follow you. Or the man says, heck no, don't touch my money. Sorry, thanks, but no thanks. And he leaves. But why does he walk away sad? That doesn't make any sense to me. And it's because maybe he loved Jesus. But he just loved money more. He knew that at the end of the day, he wasn't going to part with it, but he was like, dang it, I actually love Jesus. You know, um, before I came into ministry, uh, my old pastor once told me a story about a husband and wife uh, who went through a really painful divorce. And uh, he was telling me about his counseling sessions with the wife. And essentially what happened was uh, this husband was just married to his money. He was married to his job. He was a workaholic. Uh, was never present for his family. He was never home, never gave his kids, his wife, any attention. They were fighting all the time, and things were coming to a head, and one day there was this huge explosive fight that they had. And, and she was like, you know what? You're going to choose. You're going to choose your job, or you're going to choose me. And, and, there, and he's fuming because he was like, how dare you say that? Because my job is for you. Everything I do is to provide for you and the kids. How dare you make me choose? And they're fighting and they're screaming at each other. And all of a sudden the phone rings. The alert goes off and he looks down and it's the boss. And she says, you pick up that phone, it's over. You pick up that phone, I swear, it's over. And as she's retelling the story, she says, all of a sudden, tears start welling up in the husband's eyes. And he starts crying. And she has no idea what's going on. But he turns around, grabs the phone, and answers the phone. And this, that's pretty much how the marriage ends. And I feel like that story is such a perfect description of what's happening here. The husband obviously loved his wife. And he loved his kids. But at the end of the day, he loved his job and he loved his money more. And this is what Jesus is confronting the rich man with. It's meant to provoke something in all of us, right? Um, you know, I think the first thing we, we, we feel when we read a story like this is we have to ask ourselves the hard question, 
What or who do we really love? For those of you who identify as Christians and followers of Jesus, I mean, like my kids already, they're trained. You know, when I say, who do you love most? They say, God, because that's the right answer. Every Christian knows that's the right answer, but a story like this makes us ask ourselves the hard question, who or what do we really love? Um, and uh, Jamie Smith has a great book called You Are What You Love. And in the opening cha chapter, he talks about a film by a famous Russian filmmaker um, called Stalker. Okay? Uh, if you've never seen the film, I would definitely go watch it. And basically, the, the plot follows three men on a journey. Okay? Professor, a writer, Stalker. Okay? Those are their names. And Stalker is the guide. And you realize as you're starting to watch the movie that Stalker is... is taking them somewhere. He's like a tour guide. And he's basically taking them to a place called the zone. And more specifically, he's taking them to a place called the room in the zone. And apparently, anybody who steps foot in that room will have their innermost desire fulfilled, will have their innermost wish granted. And so they work hard to finally get to this room, and they get to the door of the room, and nobody wants to go in first because they're like, wait a second, what if I don't know what I love? What if I don't know what I want? Because you see the room, it doesn't give you what you think you love. It gives you what you actually love, okay? And um, this is probably going to ruin the movie for you. I'm sorry. It's 1979. Um, you had enough time. But basically, um, nobody ends up going in. Nobody ends up entering. And it's a commentary on the human condition that at the end of the day, we're so terrified of being confronted with the hard truth of who we really are and what we really love. You say you love Jesus and you say you love God, but at the end of the day, do you love your money more? This is what's happening to the rich man. And in fact, this is exactly meant to, to provoke something in all of us, and it's doing that in the story. It's provoking something in the disciples because the disciples are watching this encounter unfold, and it's beginning to draw out all their own insecurities as well because they're like, if this man who represents the best society can offer, if this man has everything we would want on our resume, if he can't be saved, then they ask the question, who then can be saved? What hope is there for us? And Jesus responds, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And isn't it interesting here that Jesus doesn't single out rich people. He singles out all people. In fact, in verse 22, Jesus says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But when Jesus repeats himself in verse 24, he takes out the part about wealth. And he just says, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, yes, it's really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God because it's really hard for rich people to know their helplessness. And it's really hard because rich people have so many other ways to cover up their shame and their nakedness and their insecurity. But honestly, it's hard for all people. In fact, it's impossible for all people to enter the kingdom of God unless God himself intervenes. This morning, you might feel like the disciples. And you feel, you feel this penetrating in your heart. 
and you're asking if this guy who did everything according to the book walked away from Jesus sad, who then can be saved? What hope is there for me? And the answer is no one can be saved. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But here's the hope of the gospel and here's the good news. Though this rich young man, like all of us, when put to the fire, had a limit to what he was willing to give up to follow Jesus, Jesus had no such limits. Jesus was the richest being in the universe. He was creator God, king of kings. And he was willing to give up everything for you and me. Jesus was God intervening so that you and I could enter the kingdom. Philippians 2 says, Jesus being in very nature God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What often keeps our hands closed and our, and our fist clenched when it comes to money is that we keep thinking, we keep buying into the lie that the moment we open our hands, we lose something. And the gospel teaches us that no, when we open our hands and give our time, energy, and resources to God and to others, we don't lose anything. We gain a greater treasure in Christ. We gain the gift of his immeasurable, lavish grace we gain a treasure worth the king of kings, leaving all of the riches of his heavenly throne behind and being nailed to the cross. And anything we think money can give us, security, comfort, approval, validation, we receive all of that a hundredfold in Christ Jesus. And this is what Jesus means at the end when he says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life he doesn't say it's not going to be hard i love that jesus slips in that with persecutions he's saying yeah it's going to be hard to follow me you're going to have to let go of your reliance on certain things. You're going to have to surrender certain things to me. But if you trust me, he's saying, I will provide what you need a hundred times over. And he doesn't just say one day in heaven. If you notice, he says now. And I've been wondering what that meant because I was like, I haven't won the lotto yet. So what do you mean you're going to bless me a hundredfold now? And I think I know what that means. Last week, I shared with the church that our family's been going through some crazy times, um, you know, because of burst pipes in our home. Um, our, our home is in shambles, and um, they're saying that our home is not going to be livable until minimum December. And so we are bouncing around from Air, one Airbnb to another, and our kids are telling us every night that they miss their home. And you know what's crazy? This past week, people in this very community 
brought home to us, either through their company, through a meal, through taking time to play with our kids. They brought home to us. And we have never in this entire season, and we know for, for a fact that we will not lack a home. We may have lost our house for the moment, but, but this church and this community and this body has become a house, has become sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers to our children. This is what Jesus is saying. If you trust me, you will lose some things, but I will give you everything a hundredfold. And for me, Jesus has really been humbling and convicting me uh, of three things this past week. And I pray you would take these three things with you. Number one, he's, he's been convicting me of the absolute fragility and the fleeting nature of the things we work so hard to buy on this earth. You know, like we have, we, we packed like 1% of our belongings in a few suitcases, and honestly, we're fine. And we're like, what the heck do we need all that stuff in our home for? You know, it's like you realize when you have to pack just what you need that you don't need most of the things that you have. The second thing is God is reminding us that he will always give us what we need when we need it the most. He won't always give us what we want, but he will always give us what we need. And finally, he's teaching us that as recipients of God's lavish grace, that we are now called to embody the abundant love and generosity of Christ to those around us, to live with open hands and to give our time, money, and resources to those in need. And I have to say, this body has done that for us. But we have to realize that we haven't, we haven't been given these things for us to just sit, with, sit on our hands and to close our fists and say, this is mine. We've been given and shown grace by Jesus and by the body so that we can now be a blessing to others. You may not know it today, but you may be the very embodiment of verse 31 in Mark chapter 10 to somebody in your life. You may be the very embodiment of the gospel of God's abundant love and generosity. You know, for the 1% of you uh, in this room who say that money has no hold on you whatsoever, okay, first of all, the 1% of you are liars, okay? Um, but if you say that, and if you really believe that, you know, money really, you know, you could care less about money, um, in case you're thinking this story doesn't apply to you, you're not off the hook. Because I still guarantee you there's still something in your life you run to to give you that sense that you're okay. There's still something in your life that you run to that gives you that sense of security, that gives you that sense of significance and validation. Maybe it's getting that degree. Maybe it's getting married. Maybe it's having kids. We all have something that we believe will give us something that only God can give us. And whatever it is, I believe God is looking upon you with love this morning. And he's saying, I know you're not okay. You keep saying you're okay, but I know you're not okay. Stop looking for those things in other places. Find your greatest treasure in me. And I believe there's an invitation here for every person in this room to let go of our earthly treasures and to receive a greater heavenly treasure that can only be found in knowing Jesus 
and being known by him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that a text like this can be difficult for many of us to stomach. By nature of being uh, a church in Los Angeles, by nature of living in America, uh, we have to acknowledge that even when we feel poor, we are among the richest in this world. And God, sometimes we, we don't want to admit our need we don't want to admit our emptiness and our insecurities, and often we find ourselves hiding behind things and hiding behind possessions and hiding behind titles to give us our identity, to give us our sense of significance and validation in this life. But God, you look upon us with love. And I pray that this morning we would look to the cross we would see the outpouring of your abundant generosity and love. You held nothing back. And I pray that we would look at that and we would not turn to money and things and all these created things to give us that sense, but sense of significance, but we would find it in you. That we would know that we are deeply loved and cared for, that there is nothing that would separate us from your love. So this morning, I pray that we would receive. We would open up our hands to you, to other people, and simply receive the gift of eternal life, the gift of experiencing your radical generosity, love, and goodness in the here and now. We thank you for this message. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.